Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, May 7th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing internal crisis in the Republic of Sudan and its implications uh, for the African continent as a whole. A Kenyan pastor is being held in detention after over 100 of his followers have died. Several uh, Nigerian young women who were kidnapped nearly a decade ago have been returned to their families. And the United States uh, President Joe Biden is losing electoral support among his party adherents, including African Americans. The second hour, uh, we examine uh, in detail the unfolding security situation in the Republic of Sudan, despite the beginning of talks between the two leaders of the military structures, which have clashed uh, for the last three weeks. Finally, uh, we will focus on the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the forerunner of the African Union, and uh, other features will be brought to you as well, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, from uh, the West African state of Mali, and uh, we're going to listen to Mamadou Giabati uh, from the album entitled New Ancient Strings.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, this special edition of our program for Sunday, May 7th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, that was uh, music from the West African state of Mali, uh, from artist uh, Tumani Giabate, and Balake Sissoko, uh, that's taken from an album entitled New Ancient Strings. And um, 
Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And uh, we're going to give you information uh, later on on how uh, you can, of course, um, log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And our lead story, of course, deals with the ongoing security crisis in the Republic of Sudan. And, of course, this has been a major uh, preoccupation, uh, of course, of the Pan-African News, while many other news agencies uh, around the world over the last three weeks. The Sudanese army yesterday uh, repulsed an attack uh, by the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, on the command of the airports, uh, which carried out frequent attacks on RSF positions. The RSF attempted to storm the command of the Air Defense Forces in Khartoum, But the Sudan Armed Forces repelled the attack, destroyed several enemy vehicles, and captured three combat vehicles. That's according to a statement issued by uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces. Despite a declared uh, ceasefire and talks in Saudi Arabia on a humanitarian truce, explosions and clashes have continued in various areas of Khartoum. The paramilitary forces are deployed mainly in the Sudanese capital and took advantage of his presence in several strategic sites to control it after the eruption of classes uh, uh, with uh, the army on April the 15th. To prevent the uh, rapid support forces, uh, militiamen from reaching the capital, Sudan's Air Force regularly raids uh, military reinforcements heading to the capital from Darfur, the home of the RSF, uh, to prevent them from reaching Khartoum. Eyewitnesses said clashes erupted uh, between uh, the Republican Palace, uh, where the RSF fighters are, and Airport Street. Also, uh, the Air Force carried out attacks while the militia forces responded with anti-aircraft guns amid the rising plumes of smoke in the sky. In a separate statement, the Sudanese army reported that its forces engaged in combat with uh, the militiamen uh, at the intersection leading to the suburb of Bari, uh, from Hartoum, the RSF uh, set up temporary mobile checkpoints on Hartoum Street. The militiamen have been accused of stealing civilians' belongings and cell phones. Also, traders claim that the RSF militias have broken their shops into their shops and looted uh, the contents uh, therein. And uh, in other news from Sudan, clashes have resumed between the Sudanese army and the Rapid Support Forces in Nyala, the capital of South Darfur, state uh, that uh, was reported on yesterday. Since April 15th, Sudan has experienced uh, intense fighting in Khartoum and several states in, Dar- in the Darfur region between the Army and the RSF, resulting in over 500 fatalities, uh, thousands of injuries, and significant infrastructural damage. In South and North Darfur, states uh, the warring parties observed a ceasefire mediated uh, by local leaders. According to security sources, uh, violent clashes erupted in three Nyala neighborhoods between the Army and the paramilitary RSF forces, with both sides employing heavy weapons that caused damage to several civilians' homes, although there were no reported casualties. The sources told the Sudan Tribune that the renewed violence occurred when a group of RSF forces attempted to infiltrate army warehouses in the El Nada neighborhood, uh, which is under the control of the army. 
The fighting uh, caused panic among residents of the area, and some fled to the city center. The main market in Nyala also closed amid uh, fears of further armed confrontations. And you can read uh, these reports in the entirety over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In the East African state of Kenya, court uh, on Friday gave police five more days to hold a pastor facing possible terror-related charges and the deaths of more than 100 of his congregants, many of whom are believed to have starved to death. Police rescued 15 emaciated parishioners from the 800-acre Khaleesi County property of Paul McKenzie last month. Four of them died after the group uh, was taken to a hospital, and survivors told investigators the pastor had instructed them to fast to death before the world ends so they could meet Jesus. A search of McKenzie's property, uh, located in a remote forested area, found more than 100 bodies and dozens of mass graves dug out, authorities have said. Autopsies on the bodies were ongoing. The completed one showed some of the buried people had died of starvation, strangulation, or suffocation. McKenzie was arrested uh, two weeks ago for alleged links to cultism. A lower court freed him this week, but he was rearrested and presented to a higher court. Uh, police have said their investigations pointed to signs of radicalization. The court that ordered McKenzie held for five more days is considering an application for a further 90-day detention. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Nigeria, two Nigerian women abducted as schoolgirls by a jihadi militant group nine years ago have been rescued, uh, the West African nation's military has said. One had a year-old baby, while the second gave birth to her second child days after her freedom. Hawa Malta and Esther Marcus were among 276 schoolgirls abducted in April of 2014 from the government girls' secondary school in the village of Shibak uh, by the Boko Haram fighters. They were rescued in April uh, by Nigerian soldiers and reunited with their families in the northeastern Borno state, according to Major General Ibrahim Ali, who leads the Nigerian military operation against the extremist violence experienced in the Northeast region for more than a decade. <clears throat> Boko Haram fighters uh, stormed the school in Borno nine years ago as the girls were preparing for exams. The mass kidnap uh, sparked global outrage and led to the Bring Back Our Girls social media campaign. More than 20 of the girls have regained their freedom in the past year, but nearly 100 are still missing. And uh, finally, in the United States, <clears throat> uh, people are, of course, uh, losing uh, their appreciation and their support uh, for uh, the existing administration of President uh, Joe Biden. Now, one, Joya Broughton, who is 41 years old and a small business owner, considers herself a fan of uh, President Joe Biden. He's provided opportunities for black-owned businesses while bringing integrity to the White House, according to her. Her decision for 2024, however, is not in doubt. Biden has proven himself in the last few years, and I'll be voting for him in the next election, said Broughton, who owns a lobbying and public affairs firm in Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of that state. Destiny Humphreys is less enthusiastic. 
the 22-year-old senior at South Carolina State University, the state's only publicly uh, historically black college or university, or HBCU, said she's disappointed in the president, feeling his accomplishments have so far not lived up uh, to uh, the um, lived up to his promises. Honestly, I feel like right now America is in a state of emergency. We need some real change," said Humphrey, who remains unsure about her vote in next year's election. Now, after a dismal start to his 2020 presidential campaign, black voters in South Carolina rallied behind Biden, reviving his White House ambitions by driving his Democratic rivals from the race and ultimately putting him on a path to defeating then-President Donald Trump. But at the outset of Biden's re-election bid, the conflicting views amongst the same voters provide an early warning sign of the challenges he faces as he aims to revive the diverse coalition that proved so crucial to him before. Black voters form the heart of Biden's base of support, and any dip in support could prove consequential in some of the most fiercely competitive states, such as Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Well aware of the challenges, the Biden campaign says it's confident in its message and is planning to highlight how the president has prioritized issues that are important to African-Americans. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswise segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Keeping your eyes on the wall and your pride down. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, May 7th, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit, Michigan. And uh, right now we want to move uh, into further details on developments in the Republic of Sudan. This report uh, deals with the talks that have uh, started in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, between the RSF and the Sudanese Armed Forces. In other news, representatives from Sudan's warring sides are holding talks in Saudi Arabia. Delegates from the Army and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces are meeting in Jeddah. Both sides say they'll only discuss the humanitarian truth and not an end to the conflict. Hundreds of people have been killed and tens of thousands have fled since the fighting broke out last month. 
As those talks get underway, there's been more violence in Sudan's capital, as Victoria Gatenby reports. A Sudanese army tank comes under attack in Khartoum. Another fires back at positions held by the paramilitary rapid support forces. As representatives of the rival sides meet in Jeddah for talks, fighting is continuing around the presidential palace. Amid the conflict, looting. In North Khartoum, this meat factory was set on fire. I don't know the source of the fire. Another fire also broke out days later in a furniture store near us. People loot and burn. That's what they do. They also burned another place not far from here. This factory close by belongs to one of the largest food packaging companies in Sudan. We received materials 10 days ago. The looters came and asked us about the contents of the cartons. Then they slit the cartons open with knives and looted what was inside. This has happened several times. More people are fleeing the capital. In Port Sudan on the eastern Red Sea coast, authorities are struggling to cope. We hope the United Nations envoy, who is now in Port Sudan, will sort out the problem of the Syrians and the Yemenis in particular. This solution could be to evacuate them to their countries or to another country, or to put them in refugee camps outside the state, so as not to face problems and security challenges because of their large numbers. The Sudanese Red Crescent is treating the sick and injured. Recently, cases of malaria have appeared. Most of the existing medications are antibiotics, pain relievers, as well as diabetes and blood pressure medications. We have comprehensive medications, but they are not sufficient. These people are waiting to leave the country, but millions of others are trapped by the fighting and struggling to get medicine, food or water. Victoria Gatenby, Al Jazeera. Get an update now on the ground with Hiba Morgan, our correspondent in Khartoum. Hiba, what's the latest? Is the fighting as intense as it's been in the past few days? Uh, yes, indeed. And just a short while ago, a little bit after 5 p.m. local time, or around 15 GMT, we were able to hear heavy artillery strikes being launched by the Rapid Support Forces against Sudanese Army fighter jets. And this was around the vicinity of the Presidential Palace, which the Sudanese Army has been trying to regain control of from the Rapid Support Forces from the early days of the conflict. But it looks like it's intensified that attempt over the past few days. More airstrikes, more intense airstrikes were launched over the the past uh, few days against RSF positions around the vicinity of the presidential palace. Airstrikes were also launched in East Nile, that's in the northeast part of the capital Khartoum. And we spoke to residents in the city of Umdurman who say that they had to hide under their bed because of the sounds of artillery and airstrikes by the RSF and the Sudanese army. So fighting still very much continues mm. in many parts of the capital Khartoum, despite the fact that it's supposed to be a period of a ceasefire agreed upon by both sides, the rapid support forces and the Sudanese army for people to be able to leave their homes and access basic necessities. But many of those who we spoke to say that that has not been possible because of the continued airstrikes, because of the continued artillery strikes, and because of the presence of fighters on the streets and being feared that they'll be caught in the crossfire if the other side targets those fighters. Is there any hope, Heber, that the talks that are ongoing in Saudi Arabia could, could help end the fighting? 
Well, the Sudanese army has made it clear that these are not peace talks. It's not meant to end the conflict. It's only meant to open humanitarian corridors for those who are in need of assistance to be able to get them, and those who want to leave the capital but have been unable to do so since the start of the fighting to be able to do that as well. So many people here say that they don't have any hopes that this would mean an end to the conflict. But they're also saying that they don't believe any agreement between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese army to open humanitarian corridors would actually hold. And when we asked them why, they said they've seen the previous ceasefires and how it's manifested. They've seen the rapid support forces fighters on the streets. They've heard the artillery strikes. So many of them say that these talks, even if the two sides do agree to a ceasefire and to opening humanitarian corridors, if they don't see that being actually manifested and implemented on the ground, they have little faith that the fighting would, would stop, even if for a little while. Heba, thank you for the update. Heba Morgan reporting there live from Khartoum. Well, the now, that was a report uh, dealing uh, with the ongoing talks that are taking place as of today, uh, Sunday, uh, May 7th, 2023, in Jeddah, uh, Saudi Arabia, between uh, the rapid uh, the support forces uh, headed by Mohammed Hamdan Dagala, or better known as General Hamati of the ISF, and uh, envoys are representing him as well as uh, the uh, commander, uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, uh, who is representing the Sudanese Armed Forces. Uh, both constituted uh, what was called the Transitional Military Council uh, after the coup d'etat uh, that overthrew uh, the former president, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, uh, who was deposed in April of 2019. We're going to listen to a panel discussion and a debate on uh, the regional security situation uh, inside uh, of the Horn of Africa, East Africa, Central Africa, due to the fact uh, that Sudan is bordered uh, by seven uh, different states on the African continent. It is a member of the African Union as well as the Arab League. Let's listen to this uh, discussion on uh, recent developments uh, taking place over the last several days in the Republic of Sudan. third weekend and counting, and if the international community secretly hoped it could stay out of it and that maybe one of Sudan's warring generals could settle uh, their long-simmering rivalry with a quick blow, well, it's time to face reality. With no clear winner in sight, the capital Khartoum is being laid uh, to ruin. Civilians who braved bullets for four years to demand an end to military rule can only hunker down or flee where fleeing is, of course, an option, particularly alarming are reports of militias in places like Darfur taking sides as civilians uh, try to make their way out to neighboring countries. To be fair, foreign players have tried to broker truces. We'll tell you about the latest one that's been announced. But is it time to change tact to sanction junta leader Abdel Fattah al-Buran and his nominal number two, Hameti, head of the RSF paramilitaries? The U.S., Egypt, Gulf states need to agree that it, neither one is fit to rule. With Egypt backing Buran, with Russia and the Emirates in business with Hameti and the gold mines he controls, who to prevent what the U.N. warns could be an exodus of 800,000 from the country? Today in the France 24 debate, we're asking how to stop the spiral in Sudan. With us, Claire Nicolet, she's the coordinator of Sudan operations for uh, the French uh, aid organization MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Thanks for being with us. 
Uh, we're joined uh, uh, from uh, Port Sudan by Muzan Al-Neil, non-resident fellow at the Tahir Institute for Middle East Policy. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. From London, Alam Ahmed, the founder of uh, the International Diaspora Project. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And from Nairobi, Mathil Vu, Sudan Advocacy Manager at the Norwegian Refugee Council. Welcome. The France 24 debate, where you can join the conversation you have on Facebook and Twitter, hashtag F24Debate. Over 100,000 have fled to neighboring countries. Three times more have been displaced internally, so says the United Nations. Charlie James has more. An emergency Arab League meeting for the second time with Sudan topping the agenda. Although nothing concrete came of the gathering, Sudanese authorities called on the Arab League's member states to condemn the rapid support forces, the paramilitary force battling Sudan's military in Khartoum. Sudan is still suffering from the violations and attacks that have been committed by the rebel rapid support forces militia on government facilities, military sites, in various residential neighborhoods, in government institutions, hospitals and schools, despite the existence of the truce proposed by the Saudi and American sides. Both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are leading efforts to find a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Sudan's two rival camps have already agreed to a ceasefire overseen by both countries. But the U.N. says neither side is respecting the agreement. None of the ceasefires has been respected in total. They have all been respected partially and sometimes only in some locations and not in others. There is a slight glimmer of hope, though. On Monday, the UN said the two warring generals had agreed to send representatives to negotiate, potentially in Saudi Arabia. Uh, let me begin with you, uh, Muzan Al-Neil. Uh, first off, tell, tell us what the situation is like where you are now in Port Sudan. Well, thank you. Yeah, in Port Sudan, uh, uh, many uh, have been internally displaced from Khartoum and other cities where fighting is taking place between um, the um, uh, Sudanese armed forces and uh, the RSF. Uh, both are, um, you know, one private militia and one uh, governmental militia in an absurd uh, war uh, in the capital and in other cities. So we have thousands of Sudanese people who have been displaced to Port Sudan, a um, relatively small city that is um, barely able to provide for uh, this number of people, many of them at the port uh, who started uh, the mixed camps, um, uh, trying to uh, leave Sudan, trying to figure out um, uh, some way to get a visa, or even some of them are trying to relocate themselves uh, to Port Sudan. The, the humanitarian situation in general is dire. We are getting a lot of help uh, by mutual aid and by popular um, initiatives and from the resistance committees or those using the ways of the neighborhood resistance committees by providing to the people, bringing water, uh, bringing uh, food, uh, even uh, paying for some of the needs of the people who have been displaced. Of course, we are not seeing UNHCR or any other international organization um, uh, doing, uh, doing that. Um, I have just moved from Khartoum two days ago and if I may tell you about the situation in Khartoum, it is horrible. It was already a horrible economic situation before the war um, started uh, for you know, decades of, um, of poverty that, or impoverishment that people have been uh, living under. Um, and also the coup has added to that. And then um, when this war started, it basically 
took over the, the, the very little infrastructural services that we have um, um, in Sudan. People now not able to reach hospitals. Also in Khartoum, I left people uh, um, depending on nothing but mutual aid and um, uh, popular support with a lot of very good initiatives that are trying. Some of them have even restarted and reopened some of the hospitals that previous governments did not bother to spend on to. Uh, so often we have a lot of neighborhoods creating networks to provide for each other. Um, also, since um, both uh, of the fighting parties did not have no interest in people's best interest and already bombing uh, water stations or uh, disabling electricity stations, many houses do not have access to those kinds of services, but neighbors are trying to help each other with that. So what we are seeing is uh, a horrible um, humanitarian situation mm. uh, on top of an already failing infrastructure that is only finding support and help by the popular initiatives of the Sudanese people and no one but that. Well, we've just had a co the connection uh, has been patched in with Khartoum itself. We can cross to uh, uh, Alayuddin Awad Nogud, the spokesperson for the Sudanese Professionals Association, uh, which is an organization that's uh, played a, a key role in the negotiations before and after uh, the ouster of Omar al-Bashir in 2019. Thank you for speaking with us here uh, in the France 24 debate. You just heard Muzan al-Neil, uh, who uh, uh, fled the capital two days ago. What's the situation like right now where you are? Uh, okay, thank you for the interview, Francois, and thank you for having me in in the debate in uh, France, France. Uh, the situation is, is horrible. As uh, your first guest uh, was in the phone said, uh, actually today is the 18th day of the of the eruption of the violence and the war in the central capital of Sudan in Khartoum, where nobody believed that the capital will be in war. I think uh, all the people in the past thinking about the war in the peripheries in Darfur and, and in the south of Sudan, but right now the war is in the capital. Today is the 18th day. Uh, it should be uh, supposed to be a ceasefire, the second day of ceasefire, but there was no ceasefire since yesterday. There is a, a very huge air force strike by the Sudan Armed Forces. Yeah, we uh, saw, we saw uh, uh, Al-Nil, al, al we, we saw uh, the, smoke, the plumes of smoke. Uh, coming yeah, from the yeah. area around the, the airport, where, where are you yeah. in relation to that? I'm, I'm in Umdurman, the second city of Khartoum. You know, Khartoum capital is three cities, Umdurman, Khartoum, and Khartoum North or Bahri. And they are connected with the bridge over the River Nile. I'm in Umdurman. Uh, so uh, Umdurman, mainly the, the violence and the war is mainly the conflict areas are in the south of Umdurman, near a big military uh, base. Uh, that's called Al-Muhandisin, or the engineering department of the army, and in the most north of Umdurman, that's, the, that's where the, the, the airport that was used for evacuation of the, of the foreign diplomatic uh, delegates, that's called Wadi Sayyidna, this airport that worked for evacuation of the delegates for the previous uh, week, like of seven days or more. Uh, this uh, area was uh, um, attacked like two days ago, where uh, and in the beginning of the eruption of the of this war, uh, because there is a two bases, one base for the rapid support forces, a big camp, and another one uh, for the military uh, bases of the uh, of the Sudan Army. Uh, and actually, it's a big uh, military area for Sudan Army, including the military college, the military press, uh, the military uh, signal academy, and so. Uh, so this area was bombed in the beginning two days of the war by uh, airstrikes, and they get out the rapid support forces of their camp, 
and it was controlled, uh, completely controlled by the military. And then in the previous three or four days, there is, I think, some clashes. The rapid support forces started, I think, to regain back or start to thinking regaining back this area because it's the only two areas that left it in the capital, not controlled by rapid support forces. That is the, uh, the military area in, uh, in the south of Umdurman and in the north of the Umdurman. This is let, the let me bring in, area. Let me bring in Alam Ahmed on this because uh, this has been, uh, th does this mesh with the stories we've been hearing that uh, on the one hand, you have uh, the uh, regular army that's got the heavy firepower, that's got the air power, and on the other hand, you have uh, Hamedi's RSF mil paramilitaries uh, who've been fighting essentially an urban guerrilla warfare. Yes, uh, thank you very much. I think this is uh, going to continue for, uh, I don't know how long it will take, but this is exactly the best description of it. You've got the military, which is a, is a proper, uh, highly professional military, is uh, conducting its uh, uh, operations in a way it has to make sure it can protect the civilian, and also uh, using the tactics as a military, how they want, uh, they, they normally been trained to deal with this kind of, uh, of, uh, of uh, attacks. But on the other hand, the militia is causing a lot of uh, challenges for the military because uh, according to the military spokesman several times, they said uh, they are they, they attack them in some ways in whatever the place and then they will run inside where civilians are actually living and some of them they go on the top, on the on the roof of buildings so like shooters so this will continue but uh, i think it's i don't know how long it will continue but definitely it will not go for long because both of them they are going to be exhausted very soon particularly the the rebel support forces because it's not the official army they're not getting the enough supply they will require but also there is lots of uh, evidence we are hearing from Khartoum and from other parts of Sudan that the rapid support forces in particular they are now hunting for every single doctor they can find on the street because they need to get treatment for their injuries we hear lots of stories from those who just been evacuated from Khartoum arriving in the UK one doctor is telling uh, that uh, he was very, very worried to be kidnapped by the rebel support forces because if they know that he's a, or they, they knew he's a, he's a doctor, they will either kidnap him or they might, uh, he will disappear. So these are all signs that the rebel support forces, they will soon become very fatigued compared to the army. Both of them, they are going to be uh, needing a break at least through this war because there is no water supplies, there is no food, everyone is struggling. And also not forget this army, they are individuals, the same like the other civilians. They will need to eat, they will need to rest, they will need electricity, they will need to charge their mobile phone, everything. So I think what is going on in the country will also, is also affecting the army and the rapid support forces. But everyone is now calling for them to stop this as soon as possible because the, the consequences uh, of what is happening in Sudan is making the humanitarian situation extremely, extremely uh, out of control. Let's, talk, let's talk about it with, uh, with Cal. Let's talk about it with Cal Nicolaja here just a minute because you have teams all over uh, uh, Sudan. First off, uh, we heard this prediction that we just heard uh, from Alam that. Uh, uh, the, the intense fighting like this couldn't continue after week one. We're now into week four. It is continuing. Uh, as far as doctors and medical teams, how are they coping? So that's a very difficult situation. Uh, we speak about Khartoum, we speak about Dafu as well, of course. 
so the first the first problem is that people are being trapped, so they cannot move inside the cities, meaning that they cannot uh, go to the hospitals. We heard about hospitals being looted. We heard about hospitals non -function, non, not functioning anymore. That's very true. But it's also the case that wounded cannot go to the, the hospital to, to search for, for healthcare. So this is the situation in Khartoum. This is the situation in, in Al-Fashir, where we are still team. This is a situation in Jenina, where none of the hospitals are still uh, working and they cannot evacuate even the, the, the wounded to chat. So this we can also discuss a bit about that because it's, it's very... Yeah, I want to ask you about Darfur in a moment. But uh, first off, getting, uh, you, you heard the concern there expressed by Alam Ahmed. How do you get humanitarian aid in? Uh, last Thursday when we discussed Sudan on this panel, um, we had a guest from Port Sudan saying uh, these ships that are coming in to pick up uh, refugees, why aren't they laden with uh, supplies, with medicine? Yeah, so this is the request we are, asking, we are doing at the moment to authorities, Sudanese authorities, to make enter cargo, uh, medical supply, but also teams, because uh, the, we need really reinforcement of, of our teams, uh, all the humanitarian actors and health actors in, in particular, because, of course, this situation, lots of people fled, uh, from uh, Khartoum, for instance, and uh, as we mentioned before, uh, most of, uh, of the places now, they are, they are not functioning, uh, functioning anymore. No supply, no fuel, no water. It's mentioned by, by the other guest as well. So now we are really in this situation. We need to make anti-supply. We need reinforcement. We need to have a re humanitarian response now. So this is really one of the main problems we have now, to be able to really respond to all the needs the wounded patients all over the place in Khartoum, in Darfur. So this is really uh, the situation. We really need some, some flights, some planes, some, some boats as well to arrive and to be able to deliver uh, all this uh, to the population. And before I turn to, to Mathilde Vu, just a quick question, uh, very briefly. Muzan Al-Neil, uh, we had a guest, like I said, from, from Port Sudan last week. Her concern coming from Khartoum like you did two days ago, uh, was seeing militiamen along the road and sort of evidence that uh, the fighting that had begun in the capital was beginning to fan out. Uh, did you, once you got out of the, uh, Khartoum and were on the road, how were things between there and where you are now? Right, we seem to have lost the connection there. Uh, Can you hear me? Can you hear? Uh, we can hear you now. Muzan Al Nil, did you hear the yes. question? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, so, what I was saying is that outside of Khartoum, we saw checkpoints that were populated by sometimes the RSF, sometimes the army, but mostly it was uh, the RSF. I think it is um, not really the main thing to figure to um, to look, look at which one of them. And I would like to go back to what your guest said about the army being the more professional um, side of this um, this war, which is not what I saw. Um, in reality, we all know that within less than four hours from the first bullet, the army was, you know, its fighter jets were, were shelling inside the capital. So it's not exactly an army with a lot of uh, interest in the best interests of the people or even maintaining their lives. Uh, well, um, to, to think that there's any difference between having the RSF or the uh, army over there is misleading, to say the least. In reality, we just have two parties uh, with no interest in our uh, livelihood that are fighting all over. Also, as your other guest said, we're seeing many 
Uh, we're seeing a lot of fighting in Jenina. Uh, it seems like uh, the situation in Jenina is even worse. Um, the health infrastructure has been totally destroyed. Um, the, the, there isn't even accurate numbers of the number of people killed over the past week um, in Jenina. So, yeah, the situation is not just uh, bad in Khartoum, but all over the country. That is definitely true. Uh, Mathilde Vu, uh, at this point in time, uh, do you see any sign that, uh, uh, because there's been this announcement that's come from uh, neighboring South Sudan in the past hours of a seven-day truce uh, that would go into effect on Thursday, uh, any sign that these two sides are ready for a break? I mean, these past 18 days have shown that uh, for the moment, any any commitment to ceasefires have uh, have not helped. I mean, there was a ceasefire not a very long time ago, and at the same time, we've seen five days of intense violence um, in West Darfur, for example. I'm talking about uh, armed groups fighting in the middle of the city, destroying houses, destroying displacement camps, displacement camps where people were living under tents saw their house being burned down um, and they had to flee. And I'm talking about people who've been attacked two, three times, maybe four times over the past three years, and now they have nowhere to, to flee. So this whole question of ceasefire, I mean, for us at the Norwegian Refugee Council, we think that the foreign policy has been very much uh, focused on ceasefires, but it's, it's time for the diplomacy to also look at humanitarian uh, diplomacy, like talking about uh, mitigation to um, avoid civilian harm and also um, the respect of humanitarian assistance and the respect of humanitarian worker inside the country. This needs to happen regardless of, of ceasefire. So to answer Claire Nicolet's request, which is to be able to get her teams in, to get supplies in, how do you, how do you uh, twist the arms of, uh, of uh, the uh, f fighting parties at this point? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure humanitarian organizations are in the position to twist any arms, um, but there's definitely a, a lot of uh, things to, uh, to work on. I mean, uh, a colleague from MSF talked about um, uh, getting people inside the country and, and, and supplies, right? I mean, there's a lot of things to be done also with the neighboring countries to allow air bridges, for example, and supplies to get into the country. Uh, not only to Port Sudan, but also to other places. Like, for example, you know, in, um, in White Nile, which is at the border of South Sudan, we're seeing, our teams are seeing thousands of uh, people coming in. A lot of them are actually South Sudanese refugees who had to flee Khartoum and now have to, uh, to go back to refugee camps along the Nile that are already completely, like, neglected and have, like, barely any, any services. Supplies needs to come also through this route, you know. And West Darfur, as we talked about, uh, has been completely cut off uh, from uh, from any routes because of, of the violence. And it was going to be very, very difficult to get any anybody in or any supplies in coming from Port Sudan, which is on the other side of the country. So, again, like talking with maybe Chadian authorities to try and offer, offer sorry, um, you know, routes inside, in, inside Darfur would be also very important. And Mathilde, making the point that uh, the, the Sudanese, uh, uh, the Darfur civil war, uh, unfortunately never went away, uh, even though uh, there was uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the high point of it, you might say, or the uh, most heated point of it was 
uh, some 15 to 20 years ago, there still had been fighting. The Sudanese uh, have uh, been uh, fleeing as local militias have gotten drawn in, particularly brutal uh, in those parts, uh, you can see on this map, uh, where uh, there's that enmity left over. Uh, the United Nations reporting 96 killed uh, in a West Darfur massacre that took place uh, uh, a little under two weeks ago on April the 24th. Um, witnesses uh, say militia members from the ethnic uh, Masalit and well-armed Arab communities soon joined the fray. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the fighting there uh, now forcing those to flee Sometimes, as Mati was saying, over the border, uh, we can hear from an 83-year-old man in the Chadian village of Kofrun tell uh, of armed gunmen uh, who uh, target his uh, uh, village. The whole village was burned to the ground. Because I can't run away, I was helped and brought here for rescue. Uh, let me begin with you, Carnicole, because uh, you still have a team, not in Algenina anymore, but in the, in in another one of Darfur's uh, uh, provinces in Al Fashir, in the, the 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 capital. What is it? No North Darfur. North Darfur. Yeah. Um, uh, at this point in time, how are you getting to your teams? Is it through chat? Yeah. So that's that that's the point. So we do have a team in, in Algerina still, and we do have a team in Adre also, uh, just by the border uh, to Algerina, and uh, we have a team in, in Alfasia. So uh, at the moment, uh, that's exactly what we are trying to do, to make people enter, and also, of course, uh, the, the supplies through Chad. So this is, uh, this is really a, a situation we are, we are trying to discuss with both authorities, and the uh, Chadian authorities are, are quite uh, welcoming us uh, for passing. Uh, welcoming you, because you heard Mathilde Vu describe that the pressure this puts on South Sudan, refugees having to go back the other way. Yes. What about for Chad? What's the, what, is it pressure on the Chadians? Yeah, so, so Chad is very specific because of what we just described, that this situation with Darfur is, is four years now, and there are lots of movements all the time between uh, Chad uh, and Darfur. And uh, even this uh, Kofun place, uh, there, are, there are people uh, who came before the, the start of this conflict, they were already fleeing uh, the situation. And Jainina, it's, it's the same for, for a few years now. The situation is quite bad. Of course, now it's way worse. And so uh, Chadian, uh, they are a bit ready, and that's why also we have a, a project there in Adri uh, by, the, by the border. Uh, because there are lots of movements always of refugees in and out. Uh, so, uh, yes, the situation is, is of course, uh, we, we have to get prepared, and I know that lots of humanitarian actors are getting prepared in Chad for, for this influx. And uh, there is the influx of, of course, what we are mentioning now, of um, the, the refugees. But the other point also, as well, is because of the situation in Jenina from the hospitals, uh, they are not functioning, so even though we are still team on the ground, they cannot really work at the moment. And uh, so Sudanese, they want to bring in also wounded to Chad. And that's where we are trying to get ready for. Unfortunately, the situation of the security on the road is not making it possible at the moment. So, of course, there will be a, 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 an important uh, impact on Chad for sure, for all these reasons. But wounded refugees as well. So this is what we are, uh, as humanitarian also, uh, getting prepared to.
Well, no, no good. It's a, a confusing situation. People in the west of Sudan, uh, they see people with weapons, some in uniforms. Uh, it's not always clear who is who. Uh, at this point in time, is it a, a civil war or is it still this rivalry between uh, two factions uh, that are within uh, the high halls of power? Uh, okay, Francois, that's a good question. Actually, uh, the answer of this question uh, will answer also uh, your, uh, uh, your third uh, uh, interviewer or, or your third guest, uh, Matilda, that uh, when she said that the ceasefire, is it respectable or no? We, we see that uh, the army uh, uh, have a conflict in between uh, the center of the power in the army. They, Al-Burhan gets out and says, yes, we will have a ceasefire, we accept. And at the same time, other commanders or other colonels get out, like Kabashi and Yasser Atta, say, no, there is no negotiation, there is no ceasefire, and this is a military battle, and it's going to be finished militarily and not uh, political negotiation. So this thing, this distinction or this difference inside the military, uh, the Sudan Armed Forces, make this problem. It makes the irrespect of the ceasefire where one of the commanders, the first commander, the, the Al-Burhan, get out and said, okay, and the other people said, no. So this difference, what makes the ceasefire irrespectable, and always there is an Air Force jet. So this the issue is coming from the causation of the problem and the causation of the war. That is the Muslim Brotherhood inside the army. There's, throughout the al-Bashir regime, in 30 years, there's a much and much uh, Muslim Brotherhood officers and a, a big colonel with a, 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 a larger rank and higher rank who are dictating the army. Where right now what we are facing, we are facing that the army is splitting. There is a Burhan on side or one voice that said, okay, let's sit for negotiation. And other voice said, no, we are going to finish this by a military work. And it's a military, scry, uh, uh, military battle. And these rapid support forces are rebels. We heard this uh, rebels all over Sudan time since independence. We heard in Jongarang in the south, we heard in the, in the West, therefore, and neither of them finished militarily. At the end, it finished with negotiation. So if, if, if people can just uh, get for this, get out these people who are, like, improving or calling for a military cessation and military uh, finishing of this battle, then we can sit for a negotiation and we can get a respectable ceasefire and we can get to peace. But with these people inside the Sudan Armed Forces, like Kabashi, Raata, Ibrahim Jabr, the people are saying it's a military battle and we are not fit for negotiation and these rapid support forces are rebels, we will not give a, a, a good ceasefire. According to West uh, Jinena or Darfur, uh, Jinena or West Darfur have a huge uh, connection between Iran and Chad. There is much of tribes going in between. Yes. There is some, uh, some civilian uh, issues in between, and even it was there in the transitional time, in Hamdok time. Me personally, I won one of, of the doctors or surgeons who traveled there during the clashes. But this time, the, milita the military, there is the same people, the same group in the military who are pushing for no ceasefire and for, for, for more escalating the situation, are uh, having contribution to that problem that happened there, and they leave the stores of the weapon in the headquarters of army in Algerina and in the police uh, centers open, and then the people get the arm, get armed, and they start this civil uh, issue. 
So this is the main problem. If we got reach this cause and this main problem, then we can solve the issue and we can have a good ceasefire negotiation. Alam Mahmed, uh, you agree that uh, right now uh, it's unclear as to uh, who's got the upper hand and that uh, the Islamists who uh, laid low uh, during most of the last four years could play a deciding role? Uh, very, uh, there's uh, two things which are uh, facts. Uh, I mean, no one can dispute them. When we had the revolution and uh, General Borhan took, uh, uh, he took his position as uh, the president of the Supreme Council and so on, everyone knew that, and it's fact. Those people who are leading the army now, Al-Burhan, uh, Al-Ata, Kabashi, those are the team of the former Omar al-Bashir. No dispute about that. This is uh, his team. Uh, even just before coupling of uh, Omar al-Bashir, these are his men. These are his assistants, his right hand and left hand. So everyone is still uh, not happy. Many people actually in the political parties, they, talk, they talked about this since uh, the revolution, that those people are the same, you're just having the different uh, name, but it's the same people. They are the al-Bashir. Uh, team, not only supporters, they are his team. So that's number one fact. Number two fact, during these last 18 days, there's no question. It's very clear. We follow this from the social media, from TV interviews, from everywhere, Twitter accounts, from every, every network of Sudanese in and outside Sudan. The, those uh, Brotherhood uh, supporters or members, they are fully supporting the army. So it goes very well uh, and concise of what I said earlier. So there is a clear relationship between those people who are from the previous, uh, or they're still considering themselves uh, a, a political party, although it's been officially been dismantled, the Omar al-Bashir regime, all of them, we can see them in all social media clearly advocating and supporting the army, and they're all against Hameti. So you can make a, a clear connection between the brotherhoods and the army. And as I said earlier, the army, we all know, there's no dispute about it. It's all led by those from the brotherhoods uh, or the team of Omar al-Bashir. Okay, so here's where, is the, it, where is this leading us? This is where it gets a little confusing, because both sides are trying to rally support. General Al-Buran's envoy, uh, his name is Dafala Al-Hajj Ali, welcomed in Cairo by Egypt's foreign minister this Tuesday. On Saturday, he was in Riyadh, where he was also granted an audience by the foreign minister, uh, the junta, which is urging the Arab League uh, to publicly uh, condemn uh, uh, Hameti. And uh, we had uh, the um, uh, Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, giving an interview to Japanese newspaper uh, Asai Shinbum. Uh, but Sisi warned, we will not interfere in the domestic politics of other nations because we do not want to further complicate uh, the situation, he said uh, in, in that interview. So uh, Egypt, whose current president is the sworn enemy of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, is he still backing al-Buran? Uh, Muzan al-Nil, your thoughts? Muzan al-Nil, can you hear us? We seem to have lost the connection there uh, with uh, Port Sudan. Uh, uh, apologies uh, for that. Um, 
uh, Mathilde Vu, when you look at who's backing who, and this is an important question because uh, we're wondering if both sides can uh, run out of steam or uh, whether or not they have foreign backers that can supply their war efforts. Uh, how, how do you see it right now? Um, what you just described is a very, very complex uh, uh, conflict. And uh, honestly, what our teams are seeing on the ground are just the people who are suffering. And, uh, you know, regardless of who's backing who, uh, right now we're just seeing uh, indiscriminate violence uh, in the middle of cities, no respect for civilian lives, no respect for hospitals, schools, um, no respect for people who are fleeing, uh, trying to flee and save their lives in, uh, you know, uh, across the country. So, regardless of, um, you know, the, the different, um, let's say, global politicking, uh, what UNITERN organization is asking for is basic respect for international humanitarian law, protection of civilians, and um, for this to be done immediately. Uh, is there, uh, I'll put the question to you, Alaeldin, I want no good. Um, who's got the most clout right now in the international community to get the fighting to stop? Okay, Francois, it's a good question, but, but what, what uh, your last guest said, uh, this is uh, the humanitarian issue. That's it. Uh, uh, I'm not interested in who's, who's supporting who, but actually, if you know it very well, it can solve the humanitarian issue because the Muslim Brotherhood or the Islamists have no respect for any humanitarian issues. They have no respect for hospitals. They can bomb the hospital. Me, myself, the hospital I work in was bombed three times the world, and the last, the fourth bomb was in the nurse hostel, and it gets on fire. We have a 19 hospital that's bombed by airstrike. So who's taking the airstrike is the, the, the Sudan armed forces, and who's uh, controlling is the Islamists. Also in the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods was bombed also, and the neighborhoods, the, uh, the neighborhood that bombed is the most powerful neighborhood in the resistance committee that was responsible for Sudan's great revolution in 2018. So it seems that Islamists is punishing the Sudanese nation in having the revolution. Yeah, but where, where we have trouble, where, excuse me for interrupting, uh, Aladdin. Where we have where we have trouble following is yeah. uh, uh, if General Burhan who went to military academy with uh, Egypt's president, uh, yeah. uh, if, if the, the two of them are allies, how can it be since uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi oh. is uh, uh, the sworn uh, enemy of, of the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah, that's a good question, Francois. Uh, it, it, to answer this question, you have to look for the Egypt rule, the, the role of Egypt throughout, throughout the revolution. Uh, Egypt was not happy with the democratic transition. Uh, uh, when Hamdok went to Egypt and said that we have a historic problem with Egypt and we have to sit down and solve it, then the Egyptian president was uh, unhappy. And the Burhan, before the 25th October coup to 2021, uh, 48 hours he was in Egypt, and Egypt supported the Al-Burhan coup uh, on Hamdok uh, transition government in 25th October 2021. But the coup failed. And then we have this framework agreement and the political process. And also Egypt was not happy with this political process by evidence. Number one, not even the Egyptian ambassador in Khartoum attended the signature of 
the, the, the framework agreement, but he attended what's called the Democratic Coalition uh, Party uh, uh, formation, which is the party that's against the framework agreement and against the political process. And he, the Egyptian also bring all the political uh, parties that's in the Democratic Coalition that's called the other FFC, the uh, Force of Freedom and Change in Egypt, and get out with the declaration that the soldiers or the militants should continue in power sharing with the civilians. And this concept was all uh, Sudanese nation and Sudanese political parties refused after 25th October 2021 coup. So if you can see this, that you can get that uh, al-Sisi is very much supporter of al-Burhan. And he's right now is backing him. And he is not okay with having a democratic transition and fully civilian controlled power in Sudan. Why? Because this will make very bad time for the economy of uh, what Egypt is getting from raw material from Sudan and this all advantage that gets it from Sudan and everything that's getting, uh, that Egypt is getting from Sudan since Omar al-Bashir regime. Uh, since, 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 since it about, fell. Claire Nicolet, let me yeah. ask you, uh, the... the uh, uh, there's, um, uh, we've been last three weeks trying to figure out who's close to who, Hemeti closer to the Gulf states. He's got his business ties uh, with with uh, gold mines with Russia as well. Uh, we uh, talked about uh, nominal ties perhaps with uh, Libya's uh, strongman in the east. Uh, we've just talked about the other side, about the civilians being the losers in all of this, is it the end of the so-called revolution? What are your teams on the ground telling you as far as that goes? Well, I think you, you exactly mentioned the problem. Who is trapped in the story? The civilians. Really trapped, like physically, because we discussed about it already. In Khartoum they are trapped, in Darfur they are trapped. So now, uh, that's why, indeed, the, the issue for us is, uh, as humanitarian and as, uh, I think, international also, uh, uh, communities, it's how uh, this situation stops and uh, at least we can have access to all these people who are now missing everything basically because healthcare, we spoke about water, we spoke about food. So it's really, uh, they are almost destroying the, the, the country at the moment. So that's the main uh, issue now, how we can, we can uh, really give uh, support to these uh, civilians. Muzan Al-Neil, where should... Uh the Sudanese, where should uh, humanitarian efforts be turning when it comes to foreign powers uh, to get those supplies in? Who's got the best shot at uh, getting these two sides to stop fighting? Is there anybody from the outside who can influence this? Uh, well, yeah, we know that there are many sides that can influence them. Um, I hope I'm not repeating something that your guest said before since I lost connection for some minutes, but I heard one of your guests talking about how um, the different um, regional powers, um, anti-democratic regional powers, have different relations with both sides, the, uh, the, the army and the, the RSF. That is true, and we saw them over uh, the, uh, the years supporting and putting uh, their um, economic and political power uh, behind uh, both those sides um, in 2019, for example, to force um, um, them as a government on Sudanese people, those, those same war criminals who have started uh, a war in our city. Uh, right now, we're forced on us by regional uh, powers. Uh, we also saw how um, international powers, Western, 
um, and international diplomats and EU diplomats have uh, forced the Juba Agreement um, on us by putting their political and economic um, uh, power behind it, and which we can draw straight lines from it to uh, the coup and then to this uh, current war. So, um, of course, yes, they can put their political and economic power uh, behind uh, forcing uh, both uh, war criminals to um, to stop the war. Um, we know that it's not in their interest. We saw them over the years put the, um, the, the stability of the status uh, coup over um, a democratic uh, governance and, and civilian governance uh, in Sudan, but we hope that they understand that maybe stability is in the interest of everybody, and maybe even if the cost is that Sudanese people will get to rule themselves and get a civilian government, which is the right that every person has, maybe that is not so bad that they uh, uh, keep supporting war criminals. So, of course, yes, they can do this. Uh, what uh, they can also do, what we know that they will not, is just support the will of the uh, Sudanese people. Uh, as I said, that's not uh, in their interest. Um, I'm not sure if um, international gov um, diplomats are already talking about sanctions, but I hope not. Uh, sanctions have not been effective um, in any way, and I'm not, I do not think even if they put sanctions on, for example, the RSF, they will be putting sanctions on the UAE that is buying gold from the RSF. Uh, so sanctions have always been a decorative lie uh, that never really done anything. We've been under the government of Bashir that was under sanctions for 20 years that did not bring it down. It was us in the streets that brought it down. Uh, so all the international community better do is, first of all, maybe find a way to evaluate their previous failures that reached, uh, made us reach this situation. It was all because of the choices they supported and uh, because um, of them, um, they kept saying that Sudanese people are not realistic to ask to govern themselves and they, they should just accept those war criminals. This needs to be evaluated. Those diplomats need to be put on trial, whether literally or figuratively, but it's enough. Uh, to have the, uh, we need to stop have those international organizations just um, going around creating wars with no consequences um, and doing nothing but building CDs for top staff, um, inefficient and stupid top staff like the ones we have right now um, in Sudan. We need them to put their political power behind stopping the war. That's all. Uh, the rest we can deal with. We can take care of our own country. And take care of our own country. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, because there's so much more to ask about. Uh, I want to thank you, Muzan Alneen, for joining us uh, from uh, Port Sudan. I want to thank uh, Ali Aldi and Awad Nogood for being with us from the capital, uh, Khartoum, Alam Ahmed in London, uh, Mathilde in Nairobi, Claire Nicolet, thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate. And uh, that was a debate uh, over the current security crisis in the Republic of Sudan and uh, its implications for the broader, broader geopolitical uh, construct uh, in Africa as well as West Asia. Right now, we want to listen uh, to a report on uh, the impact of the internal security crisis in the Republic of Sudan on neighboring Chad, uh, which is also uh, been struck uh, by ongoing uh, military conflict uh, between the central government, uh, which is dominated by the military, and uh, rebel groups uh, who are fighting against uh, the central government in Njamida. Uh Let's listen uh, to this report on Sudan and its impact on uh, neighboring Chad. 
Chad hosts hundreds of thousands of refugees from Sudan. And more have been pouring in since the latest fighting began last month. But beyond that, what does the war in Sudan mean for Chad? And how much of a threat is it to its security? This is a close look. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Imran Khan. The fighting in Sudan between its army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has largely continued despite a ceasefire. So far, the crisis has forced more than 20,000 people to flee to neighboring Chad. But the impact of the crisis goes beyond the immediate displacement of Sudan's people. Analysts warn the unrest could pose a serious threat to the stability of neighboring countries and the region as a whole. We'll get to our guests in a moment, but first, this report from Nihad al -Abedi. Sudan's neighbors are watching with great concern as to how the conflict is unfolding. For regional powers, it's more about minimizing the impact of the crisis. The UN warns more than 800,000 people may flee as Sudan's army and paramilitary rapid support forces battle each other despite a faltering ceasefire. At least 100,000 Sudanese are expected to seek refuge in Chad alone, which already hosts more than half a million refugees from Sudan. Without a, a quick resolution of this crisis, uh, we will continue to see more people forced to flee uh, in search of safety and, and basic assistance. Um, and we are undertaking a coordinated contingency planning for new arrivals, um, refugees, returning refugees and others, including third country nationals to all countries uh, in the region. Sudan borders a staggering seven countries, including Libya, Egypt and Chad a region that's seen its share of conflict in recent years. And analysts warn the conflict may attract more weapons and fighters. Sudan's western Darfur region is closely linked with neighboring Chad. Any instability there can quickly spread across the border. From Chad, that means fighters friendly to the head of the RSF, Mohammed Hamdan Dagala, known as Hamati, might come to his aid. Chad is a U.S. ally. And some states have concerns about the presence of Russia's Wagner mercenary group in neighboring Central African Republic and the potential to back Chadian rebels threatening its government. The Wagner group has been accused of having close ties with the rapid support forces, but the mercenary group denies any involvement in the country. A prolonged fight in Sudan could have wider ramifications for the Sahel where foreign powers like China and France have had a presence for years. Sudan's stability is important given its strategic location and has drawn the attention of major powers from both the East and West. But the continued unrest poses a significant threat and could lead to further uncertainty for the region. Nihar Alabedi for Inside Story.
Let's bring in our guest now in N'Djamena, Rimaji Hwanafi, a senior researcher covering Chad and Africa's Great Lakes region for the Institute of Security Studies. In Manama, Abdul Khalik Shaib, a Sudanese lawyer, analyst and member of the Arab Association of Constitutional Law, and Addis Ababa, Solomon Derso, founding director of Armani Africa, a pan-African think tank that focuses on peace and security policy in Africa. A warm welcome to you all. Uh, I'd like to begin with Rimaji. Uh, Ramaji, there are 20,000 refugees in Chad already from neighboring Sudan. That number is rising every single day. Is this threatening the stability of Chad? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think that, uh, no. Uh, firstly, it's not about uh, those refugees threatening the stability uh, of Chad in the whole, but what those uh, huge number of refugees bringing, and uh, the situation is unfolding, so it might be that uh, this number may rise again. What it's bringing is more stress on uh, the national uh, humanitarian system, but also the international humanitarian uh, aid organization, mainly the UN, that uh, is taking care of the refugees here in the country. Uh, because even prior to the conflict in Sudan, uh, the system was already under stress because uh, the World Food Program, that is here, one of the main humanitarian organizations, uh, publicly communicated on the fact that they were in so shortage of meals. Uh, meaning uh, fundings to take care of the refugees that were already in the country. So uh, this uh, a huge number from Sudan in um, the last weeks might then be adding stress uh, on a system that is already uh, facing a lot of challenges. Uh, let's bring in now... Um uh, Abdul Khalik um, Shaib, who's joining us from Manama. Uh, where is the Sudanese uh, government here? Where is the rapid support forces when it comes to their relations with Chad? Do they have good relations with Chad? I think uh, I think they have they have a uh, relationship with, with with Chad and it's historic with the with the Sudanese government. Uh, um, uh, but also you need to look at it from another perspective, which is basically the RSF. Some of the some of the uh, um, uh, personnel fighting in the RSF they are coming from Chad. There's tribal. Um, uh, um, uh, tribes in both borders. There's um, uh, family relationships and interracial and, and marriage relationships between between the two. So the the borders has been the the case that people fleeing the Darfur area, the East Darfur, uh, um, uh, for 20 years now since the uh, since the war in Darfur. This has you know witnessed some sort of uh, um, uh, stability when the Egypt peace agreement has been signed. But again, I mean, people now they are thinking that you know they need to flee to to Chad, and mainly those who are in East Darfur, um, Central Darfur, and 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 Darfur area where the fight between the uh, between RSF have you know um, uh, troops there and the Sudanese army as well. So um, it's historic relationship. But again, by the uh, by, and I agree with your guess that you know the, the number will be increasing, uh, and people there you know seeking different ways to leave Sudan in general, whether whether through Chad through. Uh, through South Sudan, through um, Egypt, or through uh, Ethiopia. Uh, let's bring in um, Solomon Derso here. Solomon, there is about seven countries that neighbour um, uh, Sudan. Uh, all of those are facing a refugee crisis of sorts as people try and get out. Um, is there a way that these countries can come together uh, and try and sort this out as a unified bloc, or are there too many divisions within them all? And what does, and in particular, what's Chad's role here? Indeed, um, the situation in Sudan is very dire. And if, as you know, many people fear, 
the conflict continues uh, and becomes protracted, there is a danger that Sudan would be fragmented. And a fragmented uh, Sudan that is in conflict uh, would also inevitably spill over uh, the insecurity into neighboring countries. Uh, it's important to recall that the relationship between Sudan and Chad, historically as well, is one where, uh, for example, uh, rebel groups operating from Chad have been successful in launching a campaign against Khartoum in previous years, and some of them came uh, closer to uh, even Khartoum uh, in previous years. It is the result of you know, the rapprochement between um, Khartoum and N'Djamena that actually enabled to stem the uh, base of the rebel groups in Chad uh, that uh, turned the page uh, in terms of Sudan's uh, quitting the, 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 rebel, the, the rebel groups. Uh, and we have to also recall uh, what is the, the fragility and the existence of armed groups operating in the north of uh, Chad as well, um, and they may be able also to uh, take advantage of this situation uh, for their own purpose. So right. for all neighboring countries, um, the fragility and fragmentation of Sudan uh, would be very disastrous, and indeed, uh, if the stability and whatever remains fragile stability that needs to continue both in the Sahel region, in the Central Africa region, in the Horn of Africa region, is going to continue. It is imperative that these countries come together, um, right. you know, living with their differences and, uh, you know, uh, arrest this situation so that they would avoid the wars that could come. Well, let me bring in here Abdul Khaliq. Abdul Khaliq, our guest in Addis Ababa, has said he's worried about a fragmented Sudan. Do you think that's a realistic fear? I think um, so far, if you look at what happened in, um, uh, in Libya and what happened in Syria, what happened, you know, in the countries that, you know, had a, an Arab Spring, in a way, the, the revolution started peacefully. Um, so we had a revolution in Sudan, or not a president in Sudan, that started peacefully in December 2018. It continued until April 2019. Um, it resulted in an agreement, which is basically a political share, um, a political agreement that divided power between civilians and the, uh, and the military. So we had some sort of stability for two years before the coup in uh, October 2021. But again, the, 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 what is worrying right now is basically you have an equal force to the Sudanese armed forces, which is, you know, the rapid support forces, which is, you know, completely outside the, uh, the supervision and oversight of the, of the um, Sudanese armed forces. Uh, but people, they have, you know, different speculations about who started this in the, on the 15th of October. But by the end of the day, if this, 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 People, they still think that this can be contained. People, they still think that, you know, the, 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 the transition has to continue. Um, people still think that, you know, um, 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 you know, war is not going to bring any uh, peace or stability for Sudan. But again, the position that has been taken by the Sudanese armed forces is that, you know, there's no negotiations right now with the, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the RSF, at least not with 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 Mitios, his, his deputy, um, his brother Abdurrahim. So. The fear is there that, you know, fragmented Sudan will, will, will make it worse for everyone in the region, for the Horn of Africa, for the neighboring countries, whether Egypt or Ethiopia or, 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 or uh, Chad. 
but no one has any interest for this to happen. Not the uh, not the not the not the international community at large, who have invested too much on 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 having a political agreement or political framework agreement to see uh, to see the light. Uh, it, it is still a possibility. Uh, for now, who is fighting is basically the RSF, um, the uh, and the Sudanese armed forces. If we find people and civilians have to defend themselves, then the risk is very high that we can go to civil war. Until now, it's, 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 uh, it's remote, um, but we can see there's a control of uh, um, uh, who's fighting, who's controlling these uh, uh, weapons and, 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 uh, and arsenary. But then uh, the risk is there. There's no political situation for, for these, these uh, troops to leave Khartoum, for these troops to go to their backs. I think the risk is high, and, and, and we might um, unexpectedly be in a position where where Sudan is is uh, is another another Libya or another uh, another Syria for, for for years to come, and no one has any interest to see that. Well, let me bring in Solomon Dertha here in Addis Ababa. Solomon, uh, Chad is a U.S. ally. The U.S. has a number of allies surrounding uh, Sudan, or those relationship with Sudan itself has been strained, shall we say, over, uh, over many years. Do you think Chad has a role, a diplomatic, political role to play in the resolution of the conflict? I think um, Chad can contribute indeed for uh, the resolution of uh, the, 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 this uh, crisis. Uh, every neighboring country, I would say, uh, of Sudan uh, has a stake, but also has a positive role to play for the resolution of uh, this, this this conflict uh, by using any influence uh, that they may have uh, on uh, both sides uh, of the uh, conflict, uh, the, the conflict between party, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that uh, Chad is also itself going through a transition, uh, not dissimilar to that of uh, Sudan. Um, it is similar to Sudan in the sense that uh, in Chad uh, we have also uh, a military uh, government uh, that is leading a transition post, um, although it has not been sanctioned in the way that uh, Sudan was sanctioned by the African Union. Uh, but the conditions are similar, and there are contestations as well within, within Chad as well. So um, there is a limit to what? Chad can do, uh, but all the same, within those limits, uh, I think it's uh, important to bring in, uh, because if you don't bring in all the neighboring countries, uh, the risk is that uh, their exclusion would leave a vacuum uh, that may easily be ex exploited, uh, you know, to undermine uh, the diplomatic effort to bring peace uh, and um, uh, seize the fighting in, 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 in her too. Well, let me bring in, let me bring in Ramaji now from uh, N'Djamena. Uh, Ramaji, is there a limited role that Chad can play because of this transition that our guest in Addis Ababa was talking about? Uh, I think that, I'm sorry for the, the connection, but uh, uh, I think as my colleague just said, Chad can play a role. Uh, and let us recall the fact that just before the uh this actually fightings in uh, in sudan uh chad received um a successfully two visits uh first from el buran himself and the day after from uh emeti uh meaning in a way that for the belligerent actually fighting in sudan uh chad could play a role uh in what's happening in the country uh and uh, i totally agree on the fact that 
Uh, Chad, at the moment, is also managing uh, a transition uh, with a lot of internal uh, contestations uh, and a position that is somehow fragile, but also facing a lot of uh, security perils inside. But uh, uh, definitely, I think a solution to a conflict like the one in Sudan actually has absolutely to uh, be uh, regionally set. So in that, uh, in that way, uh, Chad, uh, Central African Republic, but all the countries that actually surround Sudan needs to be implicated in uh, finding solutions to the actual, uh, actual crisis. Abdul Halik, I mean, here we are, another situation where you have a country that's almost on the brink of a civil war. Sudan is fighting with each other. You have the paramilitary forces, the rapid support forces, you have the government. Uh, no one's talking about peace right now. But all of the regional countries, uh, including Chad, are wondering what that means for them. But the, the two power players in Sudan are saying to the world that this is an internal conflict right now. They're not interested in talking. So what does the international community do? What does a country like Chad do with 20,000 refugees arriving at its border, more coming uh, every day? What's the short term that countries like Chad can do? I think it's, um, 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 let me chime in here. I think it's a bit, it's a bit, um, uh, um, unrealistic to suggest that one single country can play a role, even if it, it might be a nominal role that, like my colleague has said, it's, it's, it, it should be a very limited role, and, and then the scope of that role and the boundaries that it can move in, the margin is, is, is very slim for, for, for Chad to play a role. You've already had, you know, the Quad. You had, you know, Saudi, you had the Americans, you had the uh, um, uh, Emirates, and then you had the UK as part of a, uh, a mechanism, and then you have the trilateral mechanism, which is basically EGAD, African Union, and the uh, and unanimous. So you've, you've had mechanics in place in, in Khartoum that, in a way or another, they failed to contain that, that conflict for so far. But again, there's initiatives, you know, between the Saudis and the Americans to at least suggest a ceasefire and for that ceasefire to be permanent. Um, uh, what they are doing right now is, is that they are extending the truth for, for, for allowing, you know, um, uh, guaranteed, um, secured, um, safe routes for, for, for allowing, you know, humanitarian aid to come to Khartoum. But again, I think it's a, um, it's not like a, a one country, uh, that can do anything. Or, it, it has to be a community, an international community itself to move. And we have to use the, uh, the, the resources that we have right now in, 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 in the country. Basically, you know, the, the mechanics that we had in place and try which is to suggest some changes. The other thing is, 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 um, uh, what you mentioned about the internal, um, there's no internal, internal, um, intention between the, between the RSF and the Sudanese armed forces to get into negotiations. I don't think this is entirely, um, 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 accurate. We can see that the RSF, they are, um, begging an official international community to find a way for them, um, to negotiate because they don't want to lose what they have achieved so far over the past four years. Um, the, the SAF, they are taking a very stubborn position. They're taking a very, um, um, uh, they're reluctant to um, uh, to have direct talks with the uh, with the RSF. They're thinking, you know, the, the priority right now is basically to resolve this issue militarily, and that you know, for the RSF to have to move outside of Khartoum with their troops and the areas that they are controlling. So I, there's a way to resolve this, but I think it would take it would take it would take uh, 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 time. 
um, the shape and the form of whatever agreement that will take place. Now, everyone is focusing on a ceasefire that, you know, that they can make it permanent, that it can make chief, um, safe foods for, for, for humanitarian to flow to the, to, to Khartoum. So I think this is the focus right now. No, no one is, no one seems to be between the two parties interested in a direct talks or political process, at least for the, for the ISF and the RSF in this process. Political parties, they are, uh, made it clear from the beginning, the FFC, the, uh, the, they made it clear that, you know, they're against the war. And the, and the solution has to be a political solution and for the transition to continue. But Solomon, once again, we are facing a, a situation where the international community is getting involved, like our guest in Manama was talking about, the various different mechanisms for talks are coming on. But until it's an African solution for African problems, we're going to see this again. Isn't this an opportunity for the nations surrounding Sudan to come together and talk to Sudan and be bring an internal solution. Let's not rely on the US anymore. Let's not rely on the UK anymore. Surely this is the opportunity. Well, I think um, it, it's one thing to have that kind of ambition uh, for uh, being able to, uh, you know, exercise responsibility and leadership uh, and bring the two sides uh, to the, you know, to the peace table, as it were. Uh, indeed, that is what the African Union, IGAD, have been trying to do. Uh, if you recall, uh, just uh, a day after the outbreak of this fighting on the 16th of uh, April, the Peace and Security Council of the African Union convened an emergency session. On the same day, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, the regional body, also convened uh, a, uh, a heads of state extraordinary meeting exactly to take leadership but also to press on the uh, two sides uh, into submitting uh, to a cessation of hostilities. Uh, I think there is so much that they can do in terms of the labor uh, that they have uh, to bear on the two sides. Uh, so it is important, therefore, for these countries, uh, since they can't buy themselves alone, whatever they have is not enough to uh, induce the parties into coming to a cessation of hostilities. What that requires is, therefore, to enlist the support and leverage of others uh, within the region, but also beyond the region. That's why the role of uh, countries such as uh, those in the Gulf, uh, the role of the U.S. becomes so important. And it's important to recall that uh, during the transition process, uh, while the trilateral mechanism involving the U.N., the African Union and IGAD uh, was at the front of it. Uh, the four countries making up the quad mm. were the ones uh, were exercising leverage uh, in pushing through uh, some of the, uh, you know, the peace uh, agreement, that the, the framework agreement that was signed in December, for example. But I think there were also lessons that need to be learned. There is so much focus on trying to get the two sides only. Uh, not right. enough attention is being given to the wider Sudanese public uh, who are opposed to this bloody war and who have been a champion of uh, solidarity, but also peace. And the voice of the wider Sudanese public needs to be harnessed, and there, is, there should be a way in planning talks between these two sides to ensure that the Sudanese civilian 
public is also adequately and effectively represented, including the members of the resistance committee who have displayed an incredible level of humanitarian activity. Uh, well, that's, that's a very interesting point. It's a very interesting point, Solomon. Let's bring in Abdul Khaliq uh, Shaib here. Abdul, you're a, you're a, you're a lawyer. Um, I remember a few years ago, the Sudanese Lawyers Association in Khartoum was a very powerful organization with a civil society voice, the kind of civil society voice that Solomon Derso is talking about. Has that voice now disappeared? Where is the Sudanese civil society here when it comes to this conflict? Um, so um, the Sudanese Society, um, the, the, the Sudanese Lawyers Association, when they came up with the uh, with the with the initiative to come up with the constitution, so so to speak, they came up with the constitution. It was part of the drafting um, um, committee or the, or the experts who've been part of part of this at, at, at some of the stages. But again, they wanted a, they wanted the constitution to work as a process. And actually, you cannot have a process by a constitution because the issue has never been, you know, whether, whether you can have a constitution in place. We had a constitution in place. No one respected that constitution, not even during the transition, not even after the coup. So I think it, the, the, people do thought, you know, if you're having a constitution, the constitution could be a political process. So they've used the constitution by the Sudanese um, um, uh, Lawyers Association, and then they pushed that to a political process. They started, you know, workshops, mm. different workshops around, you know, areas relating to peace and, and security. But again, when they came to the peace and security, and when they came to the issues relating to reintegration of the RSF within the army, here, here was the conflict. You know, the, 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 the Sudanese armed forces, they made it clear from the beginning that, you know, they need that reintegration to be as soon as possible. They needed to be within two years. Uh, and then the RSF, they wanted that to be within 10 years. So I think I think uh, the, the, the political parties now they're, they're watching this. They, they, they're trying to help, but I don't think this is beyond um, the civil society to contribute. I think the civil society right now, um, what they are trying to do is basically make sure people are safe, people are um, 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 cared for, people are uh, you know able to go to hospitals and get treatment, which is not the case right now. I mean, most of I think 90 or 80 percent of, of hospitals. Sorry, Abdul Khalik, we we are running out. So, yeah. We are running out. Of, we are running out of time, and I do want to bring in uh, Ramaji here. Ramaji, uh, we've talked a lot about the refugee crisis, about the political diplomatic role Chad can play, but in the very very short term. The longer this war goes on, there is a danger that RSF forces could fall back to the border with Chad, and that could create a real instability and a real problem uh, for some members of the Chadian government, but certainly within that region. Is this a short-term concern for you? Uh, for sure, there's, uh, there's this kind of concern, because actually, uh, whatever the, the, the issue of that conflict, actually, uh, the RSF losing ground uh, around Khartoum and getting back to Darfur, uh, might be might be something that would change uh, ethnic groups uh, equilibrium in that zone, uh, but also the RSF winning uh, that fighting actually might also have an impact. So in the short term, whatever the issue of that conflict, there might be a lot of impact uh, on Darfur and then on Chad, uh, because uh, there was a very big component or ethnic uh, character of the forces that actually are fighting within the RSF. Uh, these are mainly uh, Arab tribes gathered under uh, MAT's command. And we also know that in the past, uh, equilibrium between the different groups in Darfur, uh, meaning uh, the, the Rezegad, uh, the Zakawa, uh, the Masalit, and the others have always been very fragile. So any change in the position of the RSF actually might have an impact uh, in Darfur and meaning also in Chad as a scale-up. 
I want to thank all our guests, uh, Ramaji Hunayfi, Abdul Khalib Shaib, and Solomon Derso. And I want to thank you as well for watching. Now, you can see the program anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Imran Khan, and the entire team here, bye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, a panel discussion uh, on the impact of the internal military conflict inside the Republic of Sudan on neighboring Chad. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, May 7th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break and we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, of this week's Pan-African Journal.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music of the legendary Phyllis Hyman, along with uh, Michael Henderson, uh, Deep Inside of You. And uh, we are uh, deep inside of uh, the African world. We struggle for Pan-Africanism and African unity and African unification. And, of course, um, coming up uh, later this month, uh, we are going to be commemorating the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, uh, now known as the African Union. And uh, the origins of uh, Pan-Africanism, of course, can be traced back to many struggles, uh, many peoples uh, fighting against colonialism and imperialism. Uh, Ideologically, of course, W.B. Du Bois, uh, who was born in the United States, um, made a powerful contribution uh, to the notion of Pan-Africanism and African unity and unification. Uh, we're going to listen uh, right now in honor of uh, the upcoming anniversary of the African Union. Uh, listen to uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois uh, in his analysis of his role uh, within the early phase of the Pan-African struggle. And I got the idea that here was a chance to do something for Africa. I wrote to President Wilson and uh, told him that at the peace conference in Versailles they ought to take up the matter of the German colonies and since the Allies now are in charge that they ought to set those colonies up as free independent states and uh, put them under an international committee on which uh, Africans should be members. Mr. Wilson didn't answer that letter but the uh, the American committee over there considered it, and uh, out of that really came the uh, the Mandates Commission. On the other hand, when I got to Paris, I tried to organize a Pan-African Congress. There had been a Pan-African Conference in 1900, which I had attended and uh, wrote the resolutions, but that had died. When I tried to organize this Pan-African Congress, I was told that Paris was under martial law and that we couldn't have anything of that sort. The Americans discouraged it. But uh, I went to the black man who was uh, instrumental in bringing something like uh, 100,000 black soldiers from Africa to help in the First World War and really turn back the Germans. And uh, Dianya went to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister said I could have the Congress. But, uh, of course, the uh, America and Great Britain and so forth wouldn't allow anybody to have passports to get over there. So the Congress was rather small. We had 57 delegates, people, Negroes, who happened to be in uh, Paris at the time, a few Africans, a few Negro-Americans, and some whites. We had this first Pan-African Congress in in 1919 at the Grand Hotel. And then after the World War, in 1921, we held a much larger Congress with uh, some two or three hundred people and a good many from Africa. And that uh, aroused the colonial powers. They got very much excited because they thought I was trying to start a revolution in Africa, which I wasn't at all. 
what I was trying to do was to get educated Africans in various parts of the world to come together and know each other and talk with each other and see what kind of program could be laid down for the uh, future emancipation of the Africans in their own country. I was held several Pan-African Congresses after that. There were none that were as great and comprehensive as the second in 1921, but uh, there was one in uh, 1923 in which uh, a leading Englishman took part. That, that took place in London and Paris. And uh, in 1924, I think, in Lisbon, where we got members of the uh, Portuguese parliament and some of the colonial officials. And uh, that was an uh, excerpt uh, from an interview with uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois on uh, his uh, involvement in the early phase of the Pan-African movement. In uh, 1957, uh, Ghana uh, gained its independence, and of course Kwame Nkrumah had been involved uh, heavily in the Pan-African and socialist movement uh, for uh, many years uh, while in the United States as well as in London. Let's listen to this report uh, on uh, the independence of Ghana in 1957. The people of the Gold Coast had had their own assembly under the British, but not independence. In 1957, they became the first black Africans to get complete freedom. Leaders from East and West came to Accra to see the handover. Vice President Nixon represented the United States. He arrived with a delegation that included civil rights leader Martin Luther King. A new order is coming into being and an old order is passing away. It seems to me that uh, this is fit testimony to the fact that eventually the forces of justice triumph in the universe and somehow the universe itself is on the side of freedom uh, and justice. The British were proud of the peaceful nature of the transfer. For Dr. Nkrumah, main architect of Ghana's independence, this is a day of fulfillment. The longing to be free, the need to be free, these are part of the rightful heritage of man, a heritage denied to colonial Africa until now. The Gold Coast was renamed Ghana, with a parliamentary system modelled on Westminster. Committing themselves to civil rights, the new government put up a huge commemorative arch. Here, but a handful of years ago, men laid down their lives for a cause that was not yet won, for freedom, for justice. Komla Bedema had been with Nkrumah from the start. Now he shared the glory. And in the uh, subdued light, we mounted the platform and were all ready when the lights all went on at five minutes to twelve. With me standing on the right hand of side of Nkoma, everybody was happy. The cheering probably is still resounding, but we don't hear it. 
Freedom High Life, written by E.T. Mensa, the king of African high life music. We have freedom. We have our freedom. Ghana, we now have freedom. Ghana, Already being hailed as the father of African nationalism, Nkrumah gave funds to other nationalist movements and preached the message across the continent. This mid 20th century is Africa's. This decade is the decade of African independence. Forward then to independence, to independence now. Tomorrow, the United States of Africa. And uh, that was a focus on uh, the 1957 independence of the Gold Coast which became uh, modern-day Ghana, and it served as the basis for all the progressive uh, modern African concepts of uh, governance. And uh, the following year, as was mentioned in that report, there was the All-African People's Conference in December of 1958. In our cry, let's listen to this report. Among the delegates, Tom Mboya, 
the 28-year-old trade union leader from Kenya, son of an illiterate fisherman, graduate of Ruskin College, Oxford, and chairman of the conference, Mr. Kodjo Botsio, Ghanaian Minister of External Affairs. Dr. Cartwright, an observer from America, and the German ambassador. In black Africa, the Germans are not regarded as imperialists. Last of all, the hero of the nation, the man whose birthday is a public holiday and whose face appears on the country's stamps and coins, Kwame Nkrumah, Prime Minister of Ghana. The rash of slogans everywhere had put the delegates in a receptive mood for the fighting speech which Mr. Nkrumah had prepared. There were cries of freedom as he entered the hall. Our enemies are many, and they stand ready to pounce upon and exploit our every weakness. They play upon our vanities and flatter us in every kind of way. They tell us that this particular person or that particular country has greater or more favorable potentialities than the other. They do not tell us that we should unite, that we are all as good as we are able to make ourselves once we are free. We want, therefore, to develop our own community and an African personality. Others may feel that they have evolved the very best way of life, but we are not bound, like slavish imitators, to accept it as our mold. We find the methods used by others are suitable to our social environment, we shall adopt or adapt them. If we find them unsuitable, we shall reject them. Fighters for African freedoms, I appeal to you in the sacred name of Mother Africa to leave this conference resolved to rededicate yourselves to the task of forming among the political parties in your respective countries a broad united front based upon one common fundamental aim and object, the speedy liberation of your territories. <laughs> Don't let us also forget that colonialism and imperialism may come to us yet in a different guise, not necessarily from Europe. We must alert ourselves to be able to rec recognize this when it rears its head and prepare ourselves to fight against it. This mid-20th century is Africa's. This decade is the decade of African independence. Forward then to independence, to independence now. Tomorrow, the United States of Africa. Already, Dr. Nkrumah has taken the first step towards his ambition. Ghana and the former French colony of Guinea are to form a federation. Next on the list could be Nigeria. Welcome back. And uh, we'll move forward uh, later in the month uh, with other segments uh, on uh, the African Revolution. We're going to close out our program now. 
uh, with the music of John Coltrane's Quartet, Africa Brass. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.